0: You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. <laughs> Let's,
1: begin. Let's begin. I don't think I have a style yet. You know, like a, something special.
0: That voice saying that he doesn't have a unique style belongs to Richard Pryor. That's crazy, right? I mean, Richard Pryor was possibly the most influential stand-up comedian of all time. Dave Chappelle said that Pryor gave him the courage to go on stage. Jerry Seinfeld called him the Picasso of our profession. But back in 1971, when he gave that interview that you just heard a minute ago, Richard Pryor's career and his personal life were kind of in the toilet. He just walked away from a high-profile gig doing shows at a fancy casino, and he ditched his acting career, too. Here's Cecil Brown, one of Richard's longtime friends and the author of a memoir called Prior Lives.
2: Richard, when I met him in Berkeley, he was running from Las Vegas. Richard didn't want to uh, do that in Hollywood. He was running from it. He's looking for himself. That's what all comics, if you're going to be a great comic, you look for yourself. You look for what's unique about you.
0: Here's another clip from that 1971 interview. The person asking questions is from an underground San Francisco paper called Good Times.
1: Have you ran into any censorship of any kind? Myself? Uh, in your act? Because I'm brainwashed, you know, still. And I haven't freed myself, and I always censor myself sometimes a lot.
0: The interviewer was asking about censorship laws. Back then, comedians could get in trouble for cursing on stage. But Richard isn't worried about the law. He's focused on trying to free himself to uh, unbrainwash his mind. How about, like, uh, on TV? Perhaps?
1: I try not to go on TV because it, uh, it backs me up. You know what I mean? It makes me mad. The fact they asked me on here now, they're going to tell me what I can't do or cannot do.
0: That's why he left Vegas and L.A., because he hated the fact that the entertainment industry didn't want to hear the real Richard Pryor. And it makes sense that he came to the East Bay that unique style he said he was looking for, this is where it blossomed. Here's Ishmael Reed, a renowned Oakland-based author and professor who became friends with Richard during this era.
3: Well, I, th- I think that, uh, you know, if you look at his early, early, early stuff, like The Tonight Show, which is all self-deprecating and, and vulnerable, he played on vulnerability and, you know, and sort of aggressive and in-your-face stuff that, he, that was part of his repertoire after he left Berkeley. you'll see the difference.
0: Prior never totally lost that vulnerability, but in Berkeley, he learned how to use it to connect with audiences, instead of just getting them to laugh at his expense. He took his vulnerability and weaponized it.
4: It's a bitch when you have learned how to act to police when you get arrested. I always get, because I'm a coward anyway, so I always get, I take the time route. Get very Tommy when the police come. Hi, Mr. Officer, can I help you search myself?
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything on me,
4: but uh, be glad to go downtown and wait for you. <clears throat> I never could talk back to the police. It scared the shit out of me. I not I didn't I couldn't take them hits upside of here. Some dudes could handle that shit, you know, please. police. Uh, motherfucker. Yeah, ping! yeah, motherfucker. You know, I never could handle that. Motherfucker draw back at me and be uh uh
5: I don't think Richard Pryor would have become uh, the great comedian, great performer that he was without his time in Berkeley. He might have been a great success, but that's different.
0: That's Scott Saul, an English professor at UC Berkeley and the author of Becoming Richard Pryor.
5: Even before he comes to Berkeley, he has this great moment in an interview with Ebony, the first interview where he talks about growing up in a brothel, the person thinks he must be joking. Um, and he says, you know, I never thought about not making it, but uh, the it I'm making has nothing to do with show business. The it is, is me. Who am I? And I think that that was a very deep question that propelled him, starting in 67 on a quest. What he found in Berkeley was a, a place where there were many, many other people who were on that same quest to remake themselves and to remake the culture around them. And when he found those black artists and intellectuals, they gave him some ballast, which he carried with him. And he needed it because it was an uphill struggle to remake American culture. To say, I'm not gonna be put in the supporting role, in the cameo role because the culture industry is white and blacks can only be on the margins. No, I'm gonna turn the tables and I'm gonna be at the center and you're gonna see the world through my eyes. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of creativity to change an industry. But that's what he did.
0: In his autobiography, here's what Richard Pryor says about his time living in the East Bay, quote, if I was going to find my lost soul, I needed to cast off everything, but the bare essentials. I had to renounce the past in order to discover the future. It was the freest time of my life. On today's episode, we're going to explore how the East Bay changed Richard Pryor and how he went on to revolutionize American culture. The ways we talk about race, intimacy, our own personal demons. It was never the same after Pryor. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. Growing up in Illinois in the 1940s, Richard learned early on about his place in society. He was raised in a brothel. His grandma and his dad were pimps, and they both beat him. Even when he tried to get away from this abuse, he couldn't even fantasize about his dream of being a Hollywood star without reality slapping him back down.
5: Growing up in Peoria, you know, he would go to the movie theaters, Sometimes he'd have to sit in the upper balcony because it was segregated theater.
0: Again, prior biographer, Scott Saul.
5: Um, but he loved the movies. It was a great escape from the pressures of his childhood. But when he saw it, it's like, well, what do black people do in the movies on the screen? Well, if you're a black female, then as an actress, you're going to be the maid. If you're, the black, if you're black male, then you'll be a valet or a porter or a delivery man. And you're always in these supporting
0: roles, supporting the white stars. Richard didn't want to be a sidekick. He wanted to be the star. He started doing comedy routines in sixth grade, and then he joined the local youth theater. After he got expelled only three months into high school, he bounced around between odd jobs and a disastrous stint in the army. And then when he was about 20, he started performing at local clubs. Pretty soon he's touring, playing for African-American audiences on what was called the Chitlin circuit. The whole scene was way off the radar of mainstream white America. Anyway, in the early sixties, the most popular black comedian was Bill Cosby, but Cosby didn't get big by playing for black audiences. What landed him on TV and magazine covers was his appeal to white America. And he definitely didn't talk about race or anything controversial. That's what Richard saw as the path to success. Moved to New York and follow the Bill Cosby model. So that's what he did. Within a few years, he'd graduated from doing small coffee houses in Greenwich Village, the same types of places where Bob Dylan started out, to stand-up bits on network TV shows. There were only three channels back then, so it was a pretty big deal, especially since seeing people of color on TV was so rare. As soon as Richard got the chance, He moved out to LA to break into Hollywood. Right away, he's a hit. He moves
5: out in the summer of 66 and uh, very quickly he kind of finds that
0: he is beloved. He gets a place up in Beverly Hills and the gigs start rolling in. He's doing TV, a little bit of film, hanging out at hip clubs. He even played baseball on the weekends with big shot producers. But, you know, this is the mid-60s, and the counterculture is starting to bubble up. And everything that Richard is doing is still pretty square, very white bread.
5: Starting around 67, he becomes more dissatisfied uh, with, with his act. He feels like he's pimping his talents. And, and one reason for that is that he starts thinking more about his own life and wanting to capture the reality of his life in comedy.
0: Everything goes off the rails when he's booked for a series of really high-profile shows at a fancy Vegas casino. It's pretty much an all-white crowd, high rollers, and Pryor looks out at them, pauses, and says, What the fuck am I doing here? And he walks off stage.
2: The career track and what Vegas does uh, for black people is to create a category that makes it very difficult for you to live with yourself.
0: Again, Richard's longtime friend and collaborator, Cecil Brown.
2: You may make the money, but it's because you're playing a caricature which allows them to dismiss you as a person, you see. And Richard came to the point in his life that he didn't want that because he saw that was a dead end. When they get tired of the stereotype, they're finished. Unlike when you understand yourself and you define who you are, you are the source of this creativity.
0: Richard actually did play a few more Vegas gigs after this, but he got fired pretty quickly for being quote-unquote abusive to the audience and cursing, which was a big no-no back then. His solution in L.A., which is not a
5: sustainable one, as he discovers, is to lead a double life. So that's what he's doing in L.A., starting in 67 on, is that he's splitting his energies in two
0: directions. Here's the problem. Richard still wanted to be a big star. He didn't want to give up fame and money and all that. But he didn't want to play by the rules anymore either. So he tried to have it both ways this is a perfect example of what i'm talking about in 1968 he was a guest on johnny carson's tonight show with ronald reagan who was governor at the time that's about as mainstream establishment as you can get and then two weeks later he performed at a benefit for an anarchist group called the diggers richard was trying to do something new with his career but there was no roadmap for this type of thing culture was changing and Boundaries were unclear. Being in the new generation in the 1960s
2: was unique in all of the world. For this reason, it was the first time blacks were freely able to live, basically to read what they wanted to read, to write what they wanted to write. First time in the history of our country, because now
0: desegregation made it possible. Cecil Brown and Ishmael Reed and Richard were all in the last generation raised under Jim Crow. Imagine what it must have been like for someone to have gone from being forced to sit in the balcony of a segregated movie theater to having the opportunity to be a Hollywood star. That's what Richard had always wanted, but now he wasn't so sure.
3: I think I think probably most comedians have some kind of hurt have been hurt.
0: Again, Oakland-based author Ishmael Reed.
3: And uh, I think he was very hurt badly in his in his youth, and never really recovered from those wounds uh, because that, that was my experience with him, that he was erratic and troubled and uh, depressed. I think about I think he got damaged very early.
0: Look, I'm not going to focus on Richard's childhood in a so-called whorehouse but it was pretty horrific. Besides the beatings, he was also psychologically traumatized. I mean, he saw his stepmom turning tricks. So, yeah. Comedy was his way to break out of this world and find acceptance and even love. But he was messed up. By the late 60s, he was partying hard with coke and booze. He'd been arrested for assault and weed and... He'd already been married a few times, and now he's facing another divorce and lawsuits on top of all his career drama. Even though he'd been getting edgier in his act, especially at the black clubs alongside other African-American comedians like Paul Mooney and Red Fox, he was often sloppy on stage, if he even bothered to show up at all. Most places wouldn't even book him anymore. Then, it all came crumbling down. Literally. He
5: just feels like wherever he does, there's this kind of cloud of destruction that's following him. He's naked in his bed
0: on the morning where there's this huge earthquake. At 6 a.m. on February 9th, 1971, the San Fernando quake rattled L.A. hard. It was a big one, 6.7.
5: And he just, you know, puts on his kimono and a samurai sword, like a samurai sword and a... Fifth of whiskey and like, you know, rum, I think maybe. And like starts wandering the streets of Sunset Boulevard. It's like, what the hell's
0: going on? Is this the apocalypse? In his autobiography, Richard Pryor puts it this way. I knew I had to get out.
5: As it happens around that moment, this guy, Alan Farley, uh, pokes into his life and meets him in a dressing room after a show. And he's like, hey, you want to come up to Berkeley with me? And Richard, you know, packs a bag, not much more and takes a car and leaves
0: the world of LA behind. That spontaneous decision to catch a ride up to the East Bay with a total stranger is how Richard Pryor ended up crashing at a house at 1505 Berkeley Way for a while. Anyway, this dude, Alan Farley, let Richard crash in his bed while he took the couch. He cooked Richard meals and basically helped take care of him. He was also working at KPFA so he had access to equipment that he used to record Richard a lot. So who was Alan Farley?
5: He began as a Caltech you know, mathematician. He got a math degree from Caltech. But then he's a refugee from academia. So just as, you know, Pryor is a refugee from the Hollywood Entertainment Complex. So Alan was a refugee from academia. He didn't want to do that. So he moves out to Berkeley, which was, you know, a, a kind of a catch
0: basin for refugees of all types. This was a few years past, the free speech movement. So Berkeley was already a counterculture mecca at this point. And one of the hotspots where a lot of the people fleeing mainstream America gathered was a club not far from Alan Farley's house. It was called Mandrakes.
5: Mandrakes, it's you know on University around 10th Street. And you know it was run by a white woman, Mandy Moore is her name. She was married to a black saxophonist. The music it programmed was a combination of jazz artists like Thelonious Monk, Roland Kirk, but then, you know, great blues artists like John Hurt. And then it also had people like Commander Cody, you know, or Country Joe and the Fish. It Mixed things up. And that's where Richard found a home, you know, a, a stage.
0: When Richard landed in Berkeley, shit was crazy. The very week he arrived, hundreds of demonstrators protesting FBI raids surrounded the office of the local bureau and pounded on the doors, screaming, come out you motherfuckers, we want our dope back. And then a few days later, during an anti-war protest, a cop grabbed a protester who was knifing the tires on a police car. Then the crowd grabbed the cop and beat him bloody. And then somebody blew up a car in downtown Berkeley. Richard Pryor came here fleeing his own personal chaos, but when he got here, he found a kind of chaos that was on a whole nother level. Okay, back to Mandrakes.
5: This was an important crowd because they were highly political. Berkeley in 71, I mean, I can't emphasize how disenchanted, angry, and experimental they were all at once. They wanted to build the revolution from the ground up. That meant being experimental, experimenting with their lives, experimenting with culture. But by 71, there's an intense disenchantment with the way that people in power operate. This is a moment after so many mobilizations against the Vietnam War, where Nixon is expanding the war to Laos and Cambodia. And there's an intense anger. And Richard rides that anger and disenchantment.
0: You know
4: Rockefeller and them. You know them dogs get on TV. Dog slimy motherfucker get on TV and talk that old shit. You know what I mean? Well, actually, they got killed by the crossfire. Crossfire ain't killed bullets killed them motherfuckers.
5: The people in the audience that Mandrakes and you're cynical and they're going to thrill to that cynicism. They're not going to be brought down by it because it resonates with their sense that this is a truth teller. He's not looking not engaging in any euphemisms, like stripping away those euphemisms that have been used to cushion people's lives. Who needs that?
2: I stood in a long line to get to see him, and um, someone came out, the owner of that, uh, of the Mandrake came out and said, we have some sad news. It looks like Richard Pryor is not going to show up. And there's a big, you know, moan from the crowd. Then, oh, wait a minute. We got another note. He is coming. He is coming. He will be here uh, another hour waiting. Finally, there was a, um, a break in the music scene. Someone start playing a guitar, uh, you know, singing, blah, blah, blah. And um, so then eventually we said, Richard's here.
0: Cecil Brown met Richard in the parking lot behind Mandrakes after the show. Cecil was teaching in the English department at Kale, and he was one of the hottest young writers in America because his first novel had just blown up. It was called The Life and Loves of Mr. Jivass. I can't really say the last word in the title because it's the N-word. Anyway, when the Life and Loves of Mr. ass N-word dropped, it made a big splash. It was kind of like the book version of what Richard was starting to do on stage.
2: I remember when my book came out. I was in Harlem getting a haircut, and these guys were so amazed. I had my book with me. What the Life and Loves? What they let you put that out, man?
0: Richard and Cecil clicked right away.
2: Always came to my parties. My parties were on the other side of the hill, over here, at the end of Virginia Street, and uh, it was a beautiful place, it had a nice view and a backyard, and we had, uh, you know, we had wine and uh, James Brown music. This is really ultra hip people, man.
0: Richard knew plenty of writers in Hollywood, but this Berkeley crowd was different. These folks weren't cranking out movies of the week. They were doing literature, poetry, serious criticism, a multiracial group of intellectuals, people like Al Young, David Henderson, and Richard Brodigan. Ishmael Reed and Mark Shorer, and Leonard Michaels were all in Berkeley's English department at the time, and they would be there. Quick bit of trivia, Leonard Michaels is the dad of Jesse Michaels from Operation Ivy, one of the greatest East Bay bands of all time. I just thought that was cool. Oh, uh, Cecil's neighbors were Adam and Arlie Hochschild, two great nonfiction writers. Adam would go on to help start Mother Jones magazine.
2: What those days were, were people who caught fire, people who were worn by the heat that was coming from this new uh, uh, Renaissance, basically. This eruption of energy, whether it was music, dance, Poetry, novel writing—it seemed to be on ev- in every aspect something exciting happening. I was just one of the cats that was happening.
0: Ishmael Reed explains why he was one of the East Coast writers who came out to the Bay around this time.
3: I think I was slated to be the, the next token. When I lived in New York, I was, you know, being wine and dying, going to French restaurants, and getting my name in columns. What I did was I sacrificed all that.
0: Just like Richard. Ishmael felt constrained by his industry. He didn't want to play by the rules either.
3: I had learned in New York and from reading the history of how black writers are treated that you're gonna be restricted, you have to get a sponsor, but I wanted to break that. And one of the ways of breaking that was to leave the scene, the traditional scene where you know reputations are made. I left uh, New York, came to Oakland. Eventually, you have to live in Berkeley.
0: Comparing Richard Pryor's stand-up act to two of the other biggest black comedians of the era, Ishmael isn't shy about sharing his view of the East Bay crowd's impact.
3: You know, Dick Gregory's very polite. Dick Gregory does some profound stuff, but he's, you know, he's got manners, he's polite, and so is Cosby. Cosby was acceptable to, uh, to millions, of, millions of white Americans. But, you know, Pryor was on a cutting edge, and I think, he, I think he got that from us. He got that from Berkeley.
0: One of the most groundbreaking things about Richard Pryor's comedy was his willingness to go to some real dark emotional places. He developed this aspect of his craft through some pretty intense experimentation.
5: Some of the stuff would be like stream of consciousness poetry. Oh, see what happens if it's late at night and I'm high on cocaine and and he says like high on cocaine and whiskey and insecurity and guilt and I'm trying to create poetry of this moment. Or he's like, oh, I want to create an anti-war screenplay about a black G.I. who gets killed and how worthless his life is and how the black church and the black family and the military pushed him into a stupid death. Or I'll create a sound collage, you know, that mocks the person who was leading the massacre at, after the Attica prison uprising.
4: How, Mr. Oswald, would you handle a situation if there were an Attica to mark? <coughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't
3: know. I
5: really, truly really don't know. It would be easy. It would be easy. It would be easy. It would be easy. So, sound collage, screenplay, stream of consciousness poetry—you get that sense that he was driven to find a new groove for himself, and that meant going outside the paradigms that people had already put before him to work with. I think the most important generalization I would make about the material is that he felt under no compulsion to be funny.
1: It's uh, really uh, hard to be funny when, you know, what's went down at uh, Attica, you know, really upsets me. What I dislike very much is that they're trying to insult our intelligence, but they're doing a number, you know, on the uh, news, the commercial news, as it were. You know, they told a lie, now they, you know, they got to deal with it. Because I know every nigger knows what happens that people don't really care about it.
0: Here's a clip of a poem that he wrote in response to what happened in Attica, a prison uprising where 43 people were killed. The deaths were initially blamed on the prisoners, but it turned out later that almost all of the fatalities were caused by law enforcement.
1: Murder the dogs, the mad frothing at the mouth dogs with expensive capped teeth, fat bellies full of baby starving. No, don't wait until they die. Kill them now. Because if you let them live and die a natural death, you'll be bitten and left to die in agony. And the mad dog, Pack, will then sniff out and search for your children to eat. Eat whole, flush bones and soul.
5: If you're an entertainer, a
0: comedian, the idea is you're going to make people laugh. And he kind of broke free of that. Around this time, Richard developed some of the onstage characters he would become most famous for, like the Wino, the Junkie, and Mudbone. Right away, Bay Area critics noticed. They're like, whoa, this is
5: not a comedy routine. This is like great theater.
4: But he tells stories, fascinating stories. He was frightening, And I loved him. He made me very happy. Because I'd stay with him and listen to this stuff. See, you're lying to someone when you're an to old people. They ain't all fools, well, You don't get to be old being no fools, <laughs> So A <laughs> lot of young wise men, they dead in the motherfucker, ain't they?
0: <laughs> After checking out Richard's new act, the jazz critic for the Oakland Tribune that he'd never seen anything like it before.
4: If you didn't like to go to church, you could always hang out with the winos because they knew Jesus, personally, themselves. I right? never met a wino didn't know Jesus. That's right. I've been around. I've seen the world. I understand the facts of life. I've been around the world seven times, man.
5: I think that what happened in Berkeley is that he gets new sense of confidence in himself as a writer who is going to give voice to these darker impulses in himself and that he witnesses in American life, and American culture. So when he comes to back to L.A., he brings some of that
0: to things like The Mac or mm-hmm. to Blazing Saddles. The 1970s were arguably the most experimental time in mainstream cinema. These were the Watergate years. Conventional wisdoms and taboos were crumbling. Reality seemed to be exploding. Richard Pryor confronted the chaos head-on. He thrived in this era. He rebuilt his career and became a superstar and gained a level of creative control that was previously unheard of for a black man in the entertainment industry.
5: A lot of comedians say this equivalent of something like, they're in comedy there's basically two eras, before prior and after prior. And then you have people like Chris Rock saying that this guy is the Rosa Parks of comedy, you know? He just gave people license to explore all the, the kind of terra incognita. Um, in American life, in American politics, or just in intimate life. So it's like, it's not just that, yes, he's going to talk about police brutality, whereas previous comedians might not have. But it's also, he's going to talk about his own intimate life in a kind of unflinching way. And he's going to talk about those parts of himself that might shame him, like his self-loathing. And it's like, that's all material for the stage. I'm not going to say anything is off-limits. So that just gives people a great amount of license to, to go into whatever place they want to go. And he showed that how you could do it with great amount of craft. So it's not to be fearless is one thing, but then to explore those areas with all these capacities he had to be a great mimic, to be a great storyteller, to be a great joke teller, to be a great physical comedian. He brought all these things together on this fearless quest. So it's a liberating example that has given a lot of people a sense that they can do something similarly fearless on their own path.
4: Mr. Richard Pryor, come on, give it up.
0: Thanks for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned after the credits for a wild bonus story from Cecil's book about uh, Richard and Huey Newton hanging out at a hotel party. For this episode, I want to thank Mr. Brown and Ishmael Reed and Scott Saul. You should check out all of their books. Also, Will Butler, who wrote a great piece for Cal Sunday Magazine, and my friends Eddie Ewan and Jim Davis, who suggested this episode topic, and also the Wine and Bowties crew Who did a solid interview with cecil brown last year rest in peace to alan farley richard's friend from berkeley who recorded a lot of the archival tapes you heard in this episode also i want to thank kpfa fm where you can find east bay yesterday in the podcast section of their website it's called area 941 and also berkeley liberation radio i'm still trying to figure out how to make this show sustainable So if you know of any foundations or grant programs or donors that might be a good fit for East Bay Yesterday, please hit me up. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where I post photos related to each and every episode, as well as upcoming events and lots and lots of other cool local history news. There are links to all those social media pages at eastbayyesterday.com. If you like the show, please spread the word. My marketing budget is non-existent, zero, so I'd really appreciate it. And if you give East Bay yesterday a shout-out on social media, please be sure to tag it. And review it on iTunes, too. That really, really helps. Music for this episode was provided by Zero7, Dave Depper, C-Doc, Anatech, and Digital Primitives. The theme song music came from Anatech. Okay, bonus story time. This whole scene is pretty hazy because everybody there was pretty lit, and the two main folks we're talking about are both dead. But according to Cecil's book, he saw Richard and Huey Newton basically having a cocaine-snorting contest in a hotel after one of Richard's shows. The whole thing went pretty sour. Somebody might have slapped somebody. Guns might have come out. In his own autobiography, Richard said, "Quote: It could have been messy. That sounds like an understatement." Did you read the part in the
2: book about Hughie P. Newton? Wasn't that pretty crazy? God, yeah, yeah
0: Well, totally
2: fucked, man. <laughs> them cats, man. I mean, I, just I remember them hovering over each other, holding the uh, album of Coke. I mean, I mean, woofing, and and they both had bodyguards. And uh, just, uh, just totally insane.
0: Well, they had a coke snorting uh, contest. You said
2: yes. And I told you, I, 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 Elaine Brown, who is a well-known politician, um, I interviewed her on this, and she claims nobody could outsnort snort Hewitt, and uh, <laughs> but uh, I think Richard did. <laughs> 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 I think Richard did. He put him down, I'm telling you. And then, so the uh, another thing that's interesting about that.